0: Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children
1: and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe
0: Bisbang. And Leslie Block, both New York City based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom.
1: Quick reminder before we get started that this podcast is for general information and education purposes only, and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional.
0: Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 40. Today we are talking toddlers with the toddler whisperer herself, Dr. Tova Klein, author of the wonderful book, How Toddlers Thrive and director of the Barnard College Center for Toddler
1: Development. Zoe, I think you are particularly excited today. I am, because I'm so delighted Tova agreed to come on the show. As you know, I met her back in 2017, when my younger son attended the Barnard Toddler Center, I think Tova is going to talk to us more in depth about what this amazing place is, but my family was fortunate to be part of this program and learn from her and her amazing staff directly. To give listeners a vibe for the place, imagine a classroom of toddlers with one giant mirror in it in the classroom, and on the other side of the mirror is a window So you can actually observe your toddler in action without them ever knowing. It's a very fascinating, bizarre kind of place. And this is where all sorts of researchers and students come to observe and learn from them. But as a parent, it was incredible to see the attention to the unique emotional needs of these tiny yet complex little creatures. And I will say that as a therapist, I learned so much that year, not just about how to attend to my toddler at home, which is not always the easiest thing to do, but also how to help even my adult patients find a more compassionate and emotionally attuned way of talking to themselves. It was a really amazing experience. Yeah, we all have that toddler
0: inside of us. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So,
1: Tova, welcome to the Full Bloom podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I I am so delighted to have you here uh, in particular and would love to just hear in your own words. You introduce yourself and while you're at it, please tell us all what the Barnard Toddler Center is and
2: why you love spending your days with these fascinating little people. (laughs) Okay. So I'm Tova Klein. I am a professor at Barnard College in Psychology. And for the last almost 25 years, I've had the pleasure of running the Barnard Toddler Center, which is a center that is all things toddler. What does that mean? We are we call ourselves a living laboratory, living learning laboratory. We are a community program for two-year-olds, um, children up to about young threes. And uh, that, so that's the community part of the program, children come here. We are a learning lab for our undergraduate psychology students who either work directly with the toddlers or observe. We have a big observation room. So they get to observe and learn about early development, all our developmental psychology students and intro psychology students. And then we do research here. So we have myself and other faculty members doing research in development and developmental neuroscience on these incredibly important but also challenging and interesting years to understand you know, what development looks like and the range of development looks like and also the very important role of parents um, with young children in their development. So it's all of that, it's a very busy and energetic place
0: just like them, right? <laughs> yes,
2: exactly. exactly.
0: So let's, let's talk in a nutshell, if possible. Um, what do we need to know about toddlers? What's going on in those little brains and bodies during this kind of wacky time of life? Um, what's the toddler paradox? We'd really love for you to briefly distill the most important things parents should know about this brief yet super intense phase of life.
2: Right. So, you know, I always look at toddlers, often people will think of toddlers as just two-year-olds, as if from two to three something happens and then everything's even. But um, when I wrote my book called How Toddlers Thrive, I really labeled it for ages two to five because these early years that are just out of infancy, so the baby's been in your arms and been loved and comforted and cared for is now up on their feet and walking out in the world and they're incredibly, incredibly curious, um, is a time of unbelievably rapid growth and development. So we know from the neuroscience, the developmental neuroscience, that the brains are firing at one of the most rapid rates ever. And that means that the toddler's learning all the time in every mode, but they're also growing physically, they're gaining language. They're figuring out the world, but the really important thing and the piece that always interests me is that they're figuring out themselves. Who am I? So infants don't do this. They don't have a sense of self. Toddlers are just beginning to get a sense of self that's gonna get more and more solidified as they get older. So even by five, you know, they certainly have a better sense of who they are, but two-year-olds are at the very, very beginning of that. And if you start to get a sense of self, you also start to have your own ideas and your own ideas are the beginning of independence. So I'm always telling parents that they're either coming up on two year old or two year old has just put their foot on the path to independence for the first time. And it's a long, slow path. Any parent listening who has an older child knows that kind of unraveling independence takes years and years and years, but the toddler's just starting that. And so the paradox for them is they desperately want to do things for themselves. And they (laughs) might say mine and no, because they want to do it themselves and they're trying to figure it out. And on the other hand, they equally, desperately need the parent. And so they want to be able to turn at any moment and say, are you there for me? Or I'm just really upset and life is hard. I need you to comfort me just as I've told you go away. So it's this back and forth or a push pull between wanting to become independent and wanting to be their own person and wanting to be with the parent and wanting to be secured by the parent. And and that's hard for parents because if you're a logical person, (laughs) if your child says to you, I'll do it myself then you say, fine, do it yourself. But what the parent doesn't know is that in 30 seconds or three minutes, the child's going to be crying because they can't do it or they're just frustrated and they need the parent to help them. And so it's not a logical time. It's actually a fairly emotional time for the toddler, but also what from the adult point of view is a very irrational time. From the child's view, it's, hey, I'm trying to figure out myself.
1: it's it's, you know I mean anybody that's had a toddler it's maddening and I think that I definitely want us to come back to the toddler's point of view which you write about Mm -hmm. so beautifully in your book and is so sometimes hard to get to but also really wonderful when parents can get there but before we do I know in your book you talk about the seeds for adult success are planted in these years ages 2 to 5 and I guess I wonder, based on research, whatever you know, what is so critical about this time that informs the way our kids learn how to self-regulate sort of as they grow and later in life, which it just feels really connected to our mission here about Mm -hmm. kids fully blooming and being, you know, highly functional humans. So and like,
2: what is so, what's going on? Like, what, are Yeah. So, you know, it's it's an important question, because one of the many pieces that drew me to this age group many years ago is that it is such an important time in a child's life. And it is because it's building a foundation that then continues to be built on for better or worse, (laughs) continues to be built on throughout their lives. And You know, you can use whatever analogy fits for you. But if you build a foundation well or well enough, it doesn't have to be perfect, but well enough so it's a strong foundation, then it's easier to keep building on it. We have years of research in developmental psychology, which kept showing over and over that children who in those early years, particularly the infant toddler years, but really it's measured in the toddler years, Seem to really have a good sense of closeness to the parent and trust the parent would be there for them. So meaning if they were upset, they could turn to a parent and the parent could help them, that that kind of security seemed to translate into good things as the child grew up. So whatever age they are, that foundation seems to keep carrying through with them. And then more recently, we have the newer developmental neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So these are brain studies which are much newer and are only beginning to scratch the surface. You know, sometimes people think that we know everything there is to know about the brain and nothing could be further from the truth. But we've found a few things in the neuroscience which really validate what we knew in years of research. Okay. But what they show is the brain development is rapid at this age. So, you know, Harvard has this statistic out that it looks like, um, in any given second, particularly before the age of three, you have like a million synapses firing and connecting or not connecting. It's a crazy number. Right. So the brain is on fire. If you think about it, Mm -hmm. it is one. And two is that that the child is making an incredible number of connections in the brain during these early years, every single day, every single moment, actually. And so all of that says if we help them sort of be grounded in good things during these early years, it's not that you're not going to hit stressors and adversities in life. Of course you are. But the question is, can we help them be able to handle it with the right support in life? Um, but in terms of emotion regulation, the other piece that we've learned from the neuroscience, in many ways, was kind of earth-shattering to the to the neuroscience community. And those of us who either do research or work with young children were like, "Yeah, we told you this, <laughs> which is that the prefrontal cortex, which is you know basically the front of the brain." Um, The best way to describe that part of the brain is, yes, it's the place that's going to regulate emotions. Um, It's going to help organize the children, sequencing, you know, this comes first, this comes next. Um, I say all of those pieces that make us reasonable, socialized adults. That's what we want for our child. So they kind of control our ability to focus our attention, but importantly, it, it helps control emotions. That part of the brain is very, very, very slow to develop and is developing well into the mid-20s. Hmm. That's kind of earth-shattering, right? It that is. The actual physical growth of the brain is going to slow down, but there's parts of it that are going to be barely honed. Mm-hmm. And I look at my, I teach undergraduates as well, Barnard and Columbia students, wonderful students. But I look at them, and I when I'm teaching this part, I say, but your brains aren't fully developed yet at 18 or 20. And that's an important thing to know. Now, if you go backwards and you say, well, That part of the brain that's so important for handling emotions, focus, attention, is going to be fully developed in the mid-20s. Now go backwards. If you have a five-year-old, they're barely there. But if you have a two-year-old or three-year-old, they're really barely there. And so that part of the brain is just beginning to function at these ages. I mean, it's on board, but it's slowly on board. So what does that mean? What it means is that the parents or the important adults who are raising the child are the ones helping them handle their emotions through this period. So your child gets upset, they need you to help them calm down. Every child may need that a little differently. They It's sort of like when they get aroused up high, they need us to be there with them and help bring them down, help them feel those feelings, understand those feelings in time, and sometimes just take over and soothe them. And so that foundation then is the foundation that they take into the world, not the parent's job is done at five, don't get me wrong, it's not. (laughs) But that hard part um, of the toddler years is that the emotions are so intense. Any parent listening knows that. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe they're intense a lot of times, maybe they're intense only a little bit of the time. But either way, there's a part of the brain that's firing emotion, joy, excitement, but also anger, intense anger, frustration, without the capacity to handle it but they're not supposed to know how to handle it yet. And that's where the parent really comes into play of nurturing them, loving them, letting them know they're going to be okay. Yeah.
0: So let's let's talk about that a little bit in more detail just this this kind of looping back around to Zoe was referencing earlier around the toddler's point of view and why, you know, why you encourage parents of toddlers to shift their point of view and how do you do that? How do you Mm -hmm. um, specifically kind of walk? Parents through the steps that they can kind of hold on to as they're
1: walking through this challenging time. With a little screaming tyrant.
2: Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think often parents feel like they're either walking on eggshells or they're like landmines. You know, just as everything is going really well, kaboom, you know, she's thrown herself on the floor and you have no idea why. (laughs) Or sometimes you do know why. Like, you cut the sandwich in a triangle and she had this idea that it would be in squares you know whatever <laughs> it is they are little landmines because you don't always know what they're thinking so when i was working on my book i really one of the things that encouraged me to write it was a realization after many years of doing research on this age but also working with young children and working with parents and realizing that our world as adults is so different than the world of a toddler or, or a young child. I mean, to talk about them being foreign countries is not even strong enough a word. Like we really live in different worlds mm-hmm. than the toddler lives in. Even if we're in the same place at the same time <laughs> and we think we're seeing the same thing. So what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, particularly with our firstborns, you know, anyone listening who is a firstborn um, <laughs> or latterborns, But with our first ones, we tend to have very high expectations, particularly as soon as they're speaking. We think, oh, you know, it's a relief when your child starts to get a lot of language. You think, oh, now I can explain things to you. You'll understand. But that language is brand new to them, And the way they think is totally different than the way we think. So, you know, the best example is, you know, when you say to a child, you know, tomorrow we're going to go visit grandma and grandpa. And they say, okay, and you say not today, tomorrow. And they say, okay, tomorrow, tomorrow. And then five minutes later they say, We're going to visit grandma and grandpa. And you say, No, tomorrow. And they're they're in hysterics because they have no sense of time. That's hard for us to imagine, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're like looking at our watches or not our watches, our phones, or you know, we go by a schedule and we go by time and we have an innate sense of time. Um, some of us better than others. Mm-hmm. Um But we schedule ourselves and and we understand that if I'm late for something, somebody else is waiting for me. That is, not only is it far from a child's mind at this age, they can't do it. But they also don't know our social graces. They don't have a sense of other people fully formed because they don't even have their own sense of self really formed yet. They're just getting it. So we live kind of on different planets. That's how I see it. And if you shift yourself to thinking... Well, what's my toddler see? What's my toddler thinking? You really go to then What's my toddler's emotional need right now? And that takes you to a, like a different seat almost. And it lightens everything up for you. And my goal is to make, to demystify this process for parents, but also to make life more enjoyable mm-hmm. with toddlers because it goes so fast. It feels so slow when you're in it, but it goes so fast. And there are lots of enjoyable parts of it. Most people are having fun some of the time or finding it enjoyable. Children need us to stay close and have some humor with them. Mm -hmm. Parents take parenting very seriously these days. You can be respectful of a child but still have some humor. So that means understanding that the parent is the child's rock, literally. They think the parent is always there with them and knows what they're doing. And if they trust that the parent is going to love them, no matter what, may not like what the child's doing, but that they're going to always love them and that they can't push the parent away no matter how out of bounds the child is being. The child feels safe. The child feels secure. And that's what gives them the confidence to grow up or go forward um, in life. So now what's the challenge for parents? It's very hard to stay close to your child or even stay steady when one moment you think your child's on the same page with you and the next moment they're screaming or hitting or throwing. And so I see so much of taking on the child's point of view is remembering that we're the adults. So I'll give you an example. I have this a couple of places in my book because it's such a common one. Your three-year-old says like, no, I'm putting my own coat on. From the parent's point of view, you're in a hurry. You've got to get out the door. Maybe you have to get to work. You got to get the child to school or daycare, and the child says, no, 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 I do it myself, but we haven't left enough time for the child to do it themselves. So you say, fine, you throw it on the floor so they can flip it. Uh, You go off to get your shoes and coat, and you come back and the child is screaming because they can't do it. And often bears will say to me, well, she said she could do it herself, Mm -hmm. and I'm not gonna help her at that point. And I say, well, you know what? She wants to do it herself. She desperately wants to do it herself, but it's hard to leave in the morning. From her point of view, it's like, wait a minute, I put my coat on, which is hard to do, and then I have to say goodbye to daddy and mommy, and it all falls apart because they get flooded with emotions. So if you see it that way, you say, ah, that is hard sometimes. Let me hold the coat for you. And you're right there for them. You give them a little help, and she puts it on, and you zip it up, and she feels like a million bucks, and off you go. So it's this idea of living in their very mercurial, Quick changing emotional state of push-pull and then you move forward and you don't take it so personally. We as adults tend to take these things very personally. Like my child doesn't love me and you know children are up and down but they need to know that we're there for them even if they're being in an adult view ridiculous because from their point of view they're not being ridiculous. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah and it's, it's also hard because of course So much comes up for us as adults and like parenting, it's, you know, we talked about self-regulation in terms of what we're hoping we're giving our kids an opportunity to develop this over time. But like, this is all self-regulation for parents, like being able to intellectually get why they need to get to the toddler's point of view. And then the work that goes into staying there is
2: tremendous. So, um, but does that mean the toddler's always in charge? Absolutely not. The toddler actually feels better knowing that the adults are in charge. So it's not not a matter of, fine, you're not going to get your coat on, then we're not going anywhere. It really is, this is a really frustrating moment. And I, as the adult, can help my child get their coat on, or I can take it with us, right? They might be cold, but I'll have the coat with me. But we're still going to go out. We're still going to get to the store. Mm -hmm. That's the adult being in charge. It's not saying to the child, you decide the agenda, but it's moving with them in those moments. And, and being, I think being realistic
1: too. I mean, I know that's one real, of your steps, and like it, yeah. its not, though it may seem logical from our point of view, it's not realistic to think that your child understands what it means to be in a hurry to get to the, you know, to school. Right,
2: right. I always use the example of you, know, you might have this agenda that we're going to go outside and we're going to go for a nice walk. And maybe, you know, where there's a playground or a park in your community. And you think to yourself, oh, you know, that's like a 20 minute walk and I'll push the stroller. Now your child doesn't want to get in the stroller. You say, okay, well you can walk next to it, but you say something very rational like, but in a few minutes you're going to get in your stroller. Your child goes, okay, sure. (laughs) You know, but that's right now. Now, Two minutes later, they see some bugs crawling on the ground, and now they're watching the bugs. And while they see the bugs, they're collecting some rocks. And now they've got a rock collection. And, you know, this could go on. You could spend the next three hours in this one (laughs) spot. But you've had it in your head that you're going to get to this place. And, you know, sometimes you need to get to that place because you're going to an event or something. But often it's just that you have that idea. And so then we keep pushing the child. And I think parents have a hard time sometimes saying, Maybe I don't need to get there today. Maybe sitting and watching these ants crawl or collecting acorns in the fall is good enough and my child's engaged and happy and it's a beautiful day, but we get stuck in our own agendas and then it clashes with the child. And the question is, when do you say, all right, well, we're going to be collecting acorns and rocks right now. And when do you say, gosh, I wish we could keep collecting your rocks and acorns but we're meeting daddy in a few minutes, so I'm going to pick you up and put you in this stroller. Even if they don't want it, that's the adult being in charge but being empathic.
1: Definitely. We we want to uh, maybe shift gears a little bit into sort of how all this plays out around food and eating. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, we talk a lot on the podcast about uh, feeding our kids and sort of trying to myth bust what <laughs> what healthy really right. means, et cetera. And, um I I reread your book sort of since I dived into the Full Bloom Project with Leslie, and we've gotten really hooked on the Ellen Satter feeding dynamics models. And upon second reading of your book, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what Tova's been talking about. And so I I think our listeners are somewhat aware – of what those dynamics are, but I think since we're talking specifically about toddlers today, mm-hmm. what can you tell us about the optimal structure we should be creating at mealtimes for our toddlers? Okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, food is, you know, it's funny. There's a couple of hotbeds for toddlers, certainly for two-year-olds, but sometimes it's for three-year-olds, four-year-olds. There's a couple of hotbeds of control. Right, And and in many ways, anybody listening with a toddler feels like their toddler has all the control. But again, if you flip this and think from the toddler's view, they feel like they have no control. And so they're looking for control. Why? Because once you get some ideas of your own, you're like, hey. My ideas are what we're going to go on, not your ideas. And it's also a test of boundaries and power and other kinds of things that little people do. So what can they control? They can control getting dressed. They can, or what the way they can control if they will go to sleep or not, <laughs> they can control whether they will, you know, use the toilet, you know, you can't force any of this. So food is a place where they have control because you can serve food you can make mealtime a pleasant experience, but it's up to the toddler what they're gonna eat. And I think that's hard, a hard shift for many parents, not all, but for many, partly because we kind of control what we feed our infants, right? Whether you breast or bottle feed, like we're putting, we're giving them the bottle, we're doing all that, and all of a sudden you've got a two-year-old who ate everything before, and now they're refusing or they're picky or they're limiting. And so the question is, what do you do? And really the way I see it is feeding children now gets turned into their eating and you're setting them up again for life, right? So whether your two-year-old eats today or tomorrow is not such a question, but what are their habits going to be over time and what associations are they going to have with, with eating time, not just the foods, but eating. So, you know, setting up a regular routine is key around food within reason, regular meal times at a table. And usually toddlers like to sit in the same place. You know, they have a seat, whether it's a high chair or a booster seat or a regular chair, depending on their age, they like to sit in the same place. They like things very routine, but they often want everyone else to sit in the same place too. Um, But that also helps because then it keeps saying to them, this is meal time, this is what we do. There's no need, you know, to battle that. And then you serve whatever food you're going to serve because, you know, when parents start to feel out of control around food, what I always remind them is, but you are the one who shops. You're the one who brings the food into the house. You're the one who decides what gets served, you know, within reason, you know, you're probably not serving potato chips at every meal. You're serving healthy enough things. And so if you, serve the, that food to the child, you always have to be sure there's something that they like, right? So if you get into this battle of, I'm going to only serve the healthiest foods and there's nothing on their plate that the toddler likes, forget it. They're not going to eat anything. But if you have, usually toddlers eat very high amounts of carbs. Most listeners probably nodding their heads. Yes. (laughs) Um, you know, whether that's pasta, rice, bread, cereal. So you make sure there's always something that they like. And then you put the other food and you give it to them. And then you kind of ignore the food. Mealtime becomes chatty. And, you know, maybe your toddler eats at five o'clock and you're not hungry at five o'clock. That's okay, but you can still munch on, you know, carrots or celery so that the child gets socialized in mealtime as opposed to the control battles of you will eat this, which you can never win. It becomes a social time. You might talk about your day. I say initially with with youngest children, it's like a monologue from the adults (laughs) or the older siblings. It gets a little dull. But it can be funny and light and you're not putting anybody on the spot. And they're kind of munching or eating as you go and nobody's noticing food. As soon as you notice their food, they're like, whoa, I'm in charge here. I'm not eating that. Plus, I think the other thing that happens is they watch other people eat. You know, not, a, not intentionally, but that's what's happening. They just see that other people are eating, and food's not a big deal. And then over time, when you sit down for that meal, they're ready to chat, and they start to take over those conversations as they get a little older. You're also setting them up for the pleasure of mealtime as they get older. It's a place where children will talk about their day. Not because you've put them on the spot, like, tell me everything good and bad that happened today, but they just start chatting because you chat. And the food is secondary to it. The other piece I always tell parents is serve some food family style. Like, you know, in the middle of the table where you might, you know, it depends on your family and your culture and what foods you serve. But, you know, it can be like cheese, you know, like a cheese board or maybe there's some olives on it. No pits, you know, but, um, (laughs) you know, olives or my kids were younger. We always had lunch meat, you know, we had to pack their lunches. So we'd put some of that they are cut up vegetables and they can pick at that as they want and they again they feel in control which they love and over time you're also widening their palate because maybe they never touch the olives and then one day they do or they try cheese even if they didn't like cheese before only because it's there and it becomes their habit in eating I have my food you know i have other things i can eat they like to be able to serve themselves
1: so. yeah i actually read recently i can't remember where a new for new food introduction a kid often needs to be exposed 20 times yeah I'm before sure they'd true. be willing to explore it like yeah. especially with you know within the context of the of what we're talking
2: about right Can I just say something else about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in the last couple of years, I've been in China a few times working with a program there. I've been in kind of small places, like way outside of the cities. And each village wants to serve you like their meal. And I thought every time like, oh, this must be what toddlers feel like. And I'm turning (laughs) to somebody who speaks English and I'm like, what is this? You know, like, does anybody know what this is? And then my next question is like, am I going to venture into it? I think toddlers feel like that all the time without any breadth of experience because they've only been in the world for two or four or five years. And they're like, whoa, what is this? Right? Or they take a bite and the first bite they don't like it, you know. You know, in time on my trips to China, you know, the third or fourth or fifth day, I'm like, okay, whatever, I'll eat it, I'm okay. It does take time to get used to something new.
0: It's a great example for, you know, taking the toddler's point of view. (laughs) One thing that I'd love for you to tell our listeners what this means when when toddlers are throwing their food or uh-huh. kind of making a mess. Um, right. How do we handle that?
2: Yeah, it's a common one. It's very powerful because parents get like so bent out of shape, like, "Ah, oh, we don't throw food!" <laughs> and um, you know, for a young child, particularly your two year olds, who are you know they're impulsive, so they get an idea like, "I'm done eating." Whoop! There goes the food. Right. So. You don't want to give them too much on a plate because they'll also just toss a plate very quickly. They're communicating. And I always say to parents, like, keep that very low key. Oh, I see you're done. You know, we don't throw food. I see you're done. And you remove their plate. They learn pretty quickly that you're serious. And if you keep it light but clear boundary, just like that. Ah, I see you're finished. We don't throw food in this house. Then they start to learn. Really, when I throw food, it's communication. And we're really done. Mm -hmm. they respond to us. Now I'm sure there's parents listening and I have parents say this to me all the time, but she does it after the second bite and I'm so worried she'll be hungry. You know what? Sometimes children are hungry, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. you know, maybe the first time you give it back to them, you say, honey, when you throw it, I'll know you're done. And she throws it again. You say, Oh, I see you're done. Or they really get it. Oh, when I throw it, that will be communication. Because usually what happens is they get a big rise and one of the mercurial kind of funny things about toddlers is they'll take attention any way they can Mm -hmm. get it. This is true for older children too. If I can't get your attention just positively, I'll take it negatively or I'll take it negatively because I get more of it.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So those big reactions that we have, and again, they're not thinking food makes a mess you shouldn't throw food. I'm an adult. That's not what adults do. They're thinking, ooh, daddy's going to yell. That's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And usually, let's face it, if, if you're having dinner and there's other adults or there's older siblings there, it's the old, everyone else is chatting and the toddler's not part of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Three
2: Three-year-old, Even three-year-olds, they can't keep up with the conversation. We're usually talking about something that's completely irrelevant to them. Like, oh, the one train was stopped today and I was late for work it means nothing. You know, to your three-year-old, so they're going to get your attention, however they can, and if you can keep it very low-key and boundary, they learn very fast. It's not punitive; it really just is. I see you're done. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a reasonable limit and reasonable.
1: Yeah, and I think I, what I love about it, too, is that it's actually very validating, like you are communicating, you're telling yeah. me something, it's, it's not sort of uh, invalidating, oh, all you're doing is throwing, it's like actually right. taking it in. So before we leave the dinner table, would you be willing to share that little brief gummy bear story from your book with the <laughs> listeners? I love
2: that. <laughs> I don't know if I can share it exactly, but the gist of this is, you know, forbidden fruit is very appealing not just to children, probably to adults too, but when something is forbidden or in the case of food, when something's contingent on something else. So like, well, you have to eat this before you can have that, you know, you get dessert only if you eat that thing takes on a life of its own. So in the book, I have an example of a child who basically was like fixated on gummy bears, gummy bears, gummy bears, what, you know, wouldn't eat. And the parents were running circles around him trying to make him these incredible breakfasts because he would eat breakfast. I was like, wow, my kids just eat frozen waffles, you know, <laughs> um, because I got to get out the door. And so we convinced them that they had to serve the gummy bears with breakfast. And, you know, these were parents who were very civilized and would never do that. And we said, no, no, you have to. Or your child's just going to sit down and strike here, which is what they were doing. And they were battling every single meal for these gummy bears. So they started to give it to them with breakfast, actually. So picture gummy bears in a bowl with eggs and toast <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, the funny thing about it is the gummy bears lost their appeal, but the child had to have them at that meal before they would eat, but actually didn't eat the gummy bears. Hmm. Right? So the battle was taken away. What you're doing is taking the battle away. You really need the gummy bears? Have them. Now, what's parents fears that they'll only eat the gummy bears or they'll only eat the goldfish. And I always say, yeah, for the first couple of meals, that might be the case. Mm -hmm. But very quickly, you've taken the battle away. You need dessert, put it on the plate. I had to do this with one of my children. We used to put the dessert on the plate with the meal. And then he was like, can I eat this first? I said, Sure. Is this the only thing I can eat? Sure, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And then it just demystifies it. You know, it's like, oh, there's no battle here. And then the dessert would just sit. He would eat and then maybe or maybe not eat the dessert. But you're giving the control back to the child and you're taking the battle away. Mm-hmm. The, the main point here is don't make things also forbidden fruit. If you don't want them eating it, don't have it in the house. Mm-hmm. Right? To say to a toddler, those chocolate chip cookies in the bottom shelf, you can't have any. Mm-hmm. Or you can only have them at certain times doesn't work.
0: So, what do we do if we're parents of older children listening, and we wish we had read your book when we yeah. were raising yeah. our toddlers? What What advice do you have for us <laughs> <Are we too laughs> now that our, now that my child is my youngest is five and a half?
2: So, <laughs> I would say it's never too late with parents for parents to shift their ways with children. And you know that for your listeners who have older children you know, we always have to shift our ways because our children change or we wise up. Anytime you're in battles with your children at any age, you have to step back and say, what's going on? Because there's obviously something going on in your child and there's something going on in you, right? Because, you know, it takes two to tango. It's never just the child, it's never just you. But to step back and say, hey, what's going on? And B, I better lighten up. As parents, we get either, you know, worried or we get stubborn, right? We get the concrete feet, like, I'm not going to let this child wear that outfit to school in third grade, you know, whatever it is. Um, so it's really to take a deep breath and exhale and get humor. <laughs> and I mean that not just in the toddler elementary years, I have still have two teenagers, but I have three children, one's out of teenage years, one's almost out, and one's in it. You need a lot of humor to get their perspective and, you know, respectfully humor. So just, you know, to really stay grounded and say, okay, I need to step back. What's my part in this? And what does my child need right now? And then to let go of all of those voices that say to us, she didn't need this before. He never acted like this before, because that might be true. But right now, what's my child either upset about or telling me that they need at this moment or this phase of life? And then can I try to to shift and give that to them? Mm -hmm. And I think the more we do that, the more our children feel understood. Um, Is one, two is probably the biggest lesson I, I would say to parents of any age is you have to recognize that sometimes we do make mistakes. Some are little mistakes. Some are big mistakes. Um, And we have to go back to our children and apologize, whether it's a two-year-old who we lost our cool with and yelled at, you know, or it's a 10-year-old is to go back and say, I really shouldn't have gotten upset at you like that. Or, you know, mommy said this and I didn't really mean that and I still love you. Because your child learns that everybody makes mistakes, but we can come back together. Even with that intense emotion, we can come back together. And every child needs that, truly needs that.
1: Yeah. Thank you for the reminder and for the hope. So in closing, Tova, if each parent listening to this episode today took away and did one thing on the regular, one specific thing, what's that one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom?
2: Wow. Um, if I didn't say it, one is get some humor. (laughs) Seriously, if you want to help your child fully bloom, you have to enjoy them. Maybe not every minute, but your child really needs to get the message that you enjoy them. And the other piece I would say is to know it is not your job to make them happy. And if you really know that, then you can bear their upsets and their disappointments and everything else. And you can be there for them.
1: It's often forgotten, especially when our kids are angsty or steaming or screaming or, you know, our our emotions get in the mix as well. So if we can remember to laugh and keep it light and also keep the boundaries and that. Yeah, and if
2: I I can add one more to finalize, it is really this too shall pass Mm -hmm. for, Mm -hmm. I would say, 98% of the things. Mm -hmm. As much as we worry as parents, for most things, this too shall pass. And when it won't, you go and you get help. You speak to the pediatrician, you speak to a counselor, but for most things, this too shall pass, thankfully. Yeah,
1: right on. Right on. Well, well Tova, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for your thank time you, today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode, so please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can continue producing and delivering this content to you.
0: Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.